Welcome, everybody, to the Limitless Leadership Podcast. I'm Dustin Rubio, part of the Limitless Leadership team and youth pastor at City Church Swansea. And I'm Tim Alford, National Director of Limitless and volunteer youth leader at the Source Church Malvern. And this is a conversation designed to help youth leaders connect, think, and grow. Well, it's lovely to be here with you all, and um, thank you so much, Tim, for this opportunity to speak to you. Um, I've just been hearing a bit about what you do, and just on behalf of the church that I represent, I want to say a massive thank you. I don't think we say thank you uh, enough uh, to people in frontline ministry, and I just want to say thank you for what you're doing to transform the lives of young people in the UK. It is so valuable. It's so precious. God loves it. He sees what you do in secret. He's delighted by the way uh, you seek his face, and uh, you're rescuing the lost, the last, and the least in his name. I'm, I'm just here to, if you like, um, do a little bit of work uh, at the roots level of your ministry. Uh, and that's to hopefully give you greater confidence and also to give you greater joy in the ministry that you're called to. When I took over my first church in uh, northwest London, uh, it was, a, it was a, a really big old building and a classic kind of Anglican building. If any of you uh, relate to any of the local Anglican churches, you'll know what I mean when I say Anglican damp. It doesn't matter where you go in the world, there's a special sort of smell which is only present really in Anglican churches. And you can kind of go in there and it's like that, this really familiar, rather horrible, damp smell. And my church, this new church that I'd taken over, was particularly struggling uh, in that way. In fact, um, when I took uh, the sort of key leaders away for a blue sky thinking retreat, I was expecting them to come out with all sorts of incredible spiritual things that God was going to do amongst us uh, in the years ahead. So I got them to break up into teams and to pray and to seek the Lord and then to come back together with their big A3 sheets to kind of tell me what they thought God was saying. But on the top of four out of the five sheets, it said new toilets. I thought, wow, is this really it? Is this the height of our spiritual expectation? But the reality was that, that the building was so kind of unpleasant that everyone thought, you know what, there's no point going out and reaching people because they're going to come here, they're going to want to come back again. So we've got to do something about that. So we spent a long time trying to sort out the cosmetics of the building. And um, I used to, they used to call me the whirlwind. I used to go around with a black bin bag every day and find something I could take down or throw away. We had all these um, old silk flower arrangements on the windowsills, which were so covered in dust that there was marshmallows sitting on the top of them. And, uh, you know, I went on this great program of rejuvenation uh, in the church in the hope that we could make an environment that people would really want to be in. But after six months, no matter how hard I tried, I just couldn't escape the smell of Anglican damp. It was such a big building, this, that you, it, we didn't even have it the whole bit. We, we actually had a, a medical practice at the back, a doctor's surgery in our church building. It was that big. And uh, one day I was walking around the building and I came across this half-sized door, a bit like something from Alice in Wonderland, and I decided that I was going to go in there today. So I went to see the maintenance man and I said, you know, I want to go in that door around the back by the medical center. And he sort of started sucking his teeth in a particular southern workman style going... Oh, mate, no, you don't want to go in there. No one goes in there anymore. I said, well, look, I'm the new vicar. I want to go in there, get the keys. So then he went to his big keyboard, and he started sucking his teeth, going, can't remember which key it is. Oh, it's going to take me a long time. You sure you really want to go in there? I said, look, I'm going to go in that place today, so just get the door open, or otherwise I'll break it down. Oh, finally, he appeared with the key, and uh, armed with my camera phone torch and a stick, I kind of wished my way through there like Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom, and I kind of cut down all these horrible, massive cobwebs. I only stepped three paces uh, in through the door, and then I realized what the problem was. 
Just three steps down, lapping at my feet, was this brassy, stinking water. I said to him, how far down does it go? He says, oh, it's definitely overhead height. I said, well, any more? When did you last open the door? I can't remember, he said. So I called the fire brigade and I said, I'm the new vicar. Uh, you know, our church is flooded. I didn't tell them it was probably flooded in 1902. I just said it was flooded. And a couple of hours later, the fire brigade turned up and they stuck a massive pump down into the basement and they started pumping it out. Three hours later, and they reckon three and a half thousand gallons of rusty water later, there actually was two massive rooms way above my head height underneath the whole church. The fact is this smell of Anglican damp was the, the basement was filled with putrid water that a stream that ran nearby the church had been infiltrating uh, the foundations and, and actually filling up the basement. And all of this scout equipment from you know, the turn of the century just rusted and disintegrated into nothing. And when we pumped that basement out, it felt like a great achievement. We put a little pump in there to, to keep the water out of it over the long haul. We, we installed some lights and some heaters. And then a guy said to me at church, he said, my wife's getting really fed up with me doing heavy weights in our little flat. Do you know, do you know anywhere I could work out in the mornings? I said, I know just the place. So we set this guy up with his Russian Special Forces workout scenario in the basement of our church. Every morning, pumping iron and praising Jesus. And this is the thing, you know, in our lives, we all want to build higher and higher to get away from that horrible, nauseous smell of damp, that horrible, rotten smell of fraudulence, that kind of stench of shame. We can keep cleaning out and, you know, brightening the house and renewing the toilets and, you know, dusting down the worktops and, and we can get brighter and shinier and, 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 you know, look more and more holy. But unless we've dealt with a flooded basement, then we've really got nowhere to go. Now, we keep the lid tightly bolted. We forget where the key is, and we hope that no one's ever going to go in there. Because if they go in there, they'll know that we're really not up to scratch, that we're really not the people that we look like we really are. You can keep on building, but the thing about this Anglican damp is you just want to build higher and higher to get away from it. Before you know it, you're suffering from vertigo, so high from who you really are, you're terrified that you're really going to get found out. At the heart of this is... This one really pernicious emotion called shame. And I've done a lot of work on emotions. We've written quite a number of books with my colleague Rob, who's a consultant psychiatrist, and we've written, on, we've written the worry book, and we've written the guilt book, we've written the shame book, we're just, uh, sorry, we've written the, uh, uh, the perfectionism book, we've written the student guide to mental health, we've written the mental health access pack. We're always dealing with negative emotions. But there's one emotion that we've never really done a lot of work on, and that's shame. Because it's so difficult to understand shame. It's, it's easy to say, I feel guilty. It's easy to say, I feel worried. It's easy to say, I feel depressed. But it's not really easy to say, I feel shame. Because actually, no one really knows what shame feels like. The thing about shame is it's not actually an emotion. It's what we call an affect. This is um, Simon Rattle. He's uh, the conductor of the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra, and this is him in full flow. If you know um, Edvard Munch's The Scream, I'm sure you can see some similarities, although Simon might not appreciate them. And um, what's amazing about this picture, I think, and what's amazing about Simon's conducting is Simon hasn't got an instrument. He's just got a silent baton. He cannot make any noise in and of his, himself, but he can make the most incredible noise by directing every other part of the orchestra. He's got four parts of this orchestra, the woodwind, the brass, the strings, and the percussion. 
And the University of Glasgow says there's actually four primary emotions. Happy, sad, anger, and disgust. Now, you might say there's actually six, but let's accept that they're four for just a moment because it works quite neatly with this orchestra, that the four key elements of the orchestra are all being con controlled by the conductor. Now, the shame conductor can conduct the emotional orchestra of your heart and change the tone of joy to the tone of anguish. The shame conductor can, can change happy into uncertain. You'll know this because when you have a moment of great joy, it suddenly goes sour and you think, oh, I don't really deserve this. It can turn fear into terror. The shame conductor can manipulate the orchestra of your heart in all sorts of different ways, ways that God never intended for you. Your emotions are useful, but shame as an affect disables your emotions. And it just doesn't just disable your emotions, it disables the emotions of the young people you're working with. Now, we are in a shame pandemic right now. Because young people are used to building high towers on social media and through a presentational lifestyle and through the breakdown of family. They want to be seen to be winning, but inside they feel that they're losing. If we're not equipped to deal with their shame, then we're just not equipped. So we've got to understand our own relationship with shame in order that we can help them to understand their relationship and then we can help them to find a new sort of freedom. You know, lots of parents come to us anxiously and say, you know, Will, can you guys do anything on self-harm? We say, we do loads of stuff on self-harm, you know, and we loads of ways we can support you around self-harm. Eating disorders, yep, we, can do, we do eating disorders. They never come to us and go, Will, you know what, we've got real problems with our kids because we think that they're really shame-bound. All they see is those things that are symptomatic of being shame-bound. They never see the shame itself. They see the outworking of the shame conductor through their young people's behavior, but they don't understand just why they're behaving like that. And because it's so hard to articulate shame as an activity, it's the hidden reality of the room. You can't say, I shame. Oh, have we been shaming? I'm a little shamey right now. It just doesn't work. It doesn't compute. No one can understand because shame doesn't have a voice of its own. Shame just manipulates you and how you feel about good and bad experiences. If you're struggling to understand me, then I just think the best way to make sense of this all is the sense of fraudulence which really underpins the experience of shame in your life. You know, God has created you uniquely in his image for good works that he's prepared in advance for you to do with confidence. Jesus didn't send out the disciples and say, guys, look, totally terrified most of the time. Keep denying what you should be doing and tell everyone that you just happened to accident here. Don't have any authority whatsoever of your own because, you know, that would be a huge mistake. Instead, deny all responsibility and deny all authority all the time. Talk yourself down in order that I might be glorified? That's not how God sent out the disciples. He sent them out with confidence, with authority to heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, and proclaim the coming of the kingdom. That's a confident position. You know, the danger with youth work today is everyone's telling you to be authentic. Oh, just be authentic. So you say to the guys, oh guys, I'm in a total mess too, yeah, so I haven't really got anything to say to you because I'm being so authentic and real with you right now. Oh, you've struggled with porn? Oh yeah, me too, man. 
Like, let's pray to Jesus together and just get sorted together, because I'm just like you. I'm just a leader. I just, I'm just denying my leadership right now so I can be authentic. You're told to be authentic all the time. What you're not told is that you're a moral model, that you're out there to demonstrate what the kingdom looks like, what transformation actually is, to actually have authority. Authenticity is it's not a kind of buzzword for saying you're the same as everyone else. You're saying I'm a transformed son of God. I'm a transformed daughter of God. That's what I am. I'm just being authentic. I've come to you with real power from God. I'm not making it up. I'm just being authentic. So let's not downgrade who we are or the transformation we're experiencing for the sake of coming alongside young people and being really authentic. Let's actually just be honest about who God's called us into being for. And that means accepting that that feeling of fraudulence isn't something we're supposed to sit with. If you suffer with shame, your authenticity is just to basically publicly down everything that everyone else is doing. And so, yeah, that's me too. Because I want to be in the me too crowd, except the fact is you're not a me too person. You're a Jesus too person. Like you're not called to just sit in there in the club of everyone else going, oh, we all struggle. Oh, how we all struggle. Aren't we all really just the same? I just want to, we're just all like one another because I'm just not like everyone else. I'm uniquely created by God. And if I'm like anyone, I want to be like Jesus Christ. And he isn't like everyone else. If we're going to do this right, then we've got to accept that that feeling of fraudulence is going to permeate our experience. You know, the devil in Scripture, just, he just has two roles, to accuse and to deceive. He wants to accuse you of not matching up, and he wants to deceive you that you don't carry the identity that you really carry. You know, it seems to me that your authentic agenda seems to fulfill all of those. You deny your true identity in Christ, and then you're deceived that you're just like everyone else, when in fact you are unique. You're uniquely different. I um, received an invitation through the post a couple of years ago now, and um, it was uh, an invitation to a leaders' retreat, a really auspicious leaders' retreat, and it was being held in Windsor Castle. And I remember when I received the invitation, I opened up the envelope, and I was immediately like, oh, wow, that is really amazing. What an incredible honor, and I felt really good for a few seconds. And then I immediately thought, oh, I was, prob- I was probably on the B list Maybe someone else couldn't make it. Actually, it's probably really not for people like me. I think they might have made a mistake. And I showed it to my wife nervously to kind of see whether she'd agree with me. And she was like, oh, at last, they've realized you've got something useful to say. And I went, oh, yeah, but, you know, oh, I don't know why they invited me. It probably needed to token weird person, you know, token mental mental health person. You know, it's PC agenda. They feel that they need to get me in the room. And uh, I felt uncomfortable. I felt like a fraud. And um, I actually felt so much like a fraud. I went to Windsor Castle a couple of hours earlier than the actual start time just to make sure I was actually invited in. So I went up to the garden and went, I, I, sort of, I said, oh, I think I'm at an event that might be happening here over the next couple of days, you know. And he went, oh, yeah, yeah, you're on, uh, what's your name? Give me the card. And he said, oh, no, you're on the list. And I, I still was a bit like, oh, are you sure? Yes, you're on the list. And then I started sort of skipping around Windsor Castle, waiting to be ejected for a couple of hours. Have you seen me? I'm really here. I'm really here. Sure, I should stay. And then I went into the first session that we had in, in the first afternoon uh, with all these leaders who I really admired and, and respected and looked up to. 
And I stood right at the back, still feeling in my heart like I didn't really deserve to be there, like I, I wasn't the right sort of person for this kind of environment. And then the retreat leader, a guy called Pete Gregg, who runs the 24-7 prayer movement, he, he started the retreat by saying, everyone, just listen up. There's not a person in the room who doesn't feel like a fraud right now, but can we just get over ourselves and start worshipping Jesus? I thought, wow, I just felt like a fraud, now I think I'm hallucinating. Uh, <laughs> But then I looked around the room, and, and, and the leaders that I admire, and the leaders that I respected, the leaders who, who are the leaders of, of my generation, started just nodding their heads and being like, yeah, that's where I'm at. That's how I feel. So I don't want you to feel as leaders of young people and some younger leaders in the room that somehow you get to a place in seniority within leadership where you get away from this stuff, where you suddenly feel like validated, like, hey, model of Jesus, Ministering for God. Oh, I feel totally righteous in that place. Of course, there's something about the call that is way beyond what we have capacity for because we're ultimately sinners who are saved by God's grace. We're not, we're not qualified for the calling that we carry because God's equipped us himself because we don't carry that qualification. Only Christ carries that qualification, but God has equally not called us to live in this frame of mind. He's not said, I've equipped you and I've called you for this ministry of mine, and I want you to wander around feeling like a fraud. So you lose confidence. I want you actually to receive the call and to receive the confidence, and now to begin operating as someone who's filled with the power of the Holy Spirit and ready to do the things of the kingdom. It's not a great secret to why some people's prayers seem to be particularly powerful. Generally, it relates to the extent within which they believe that they should be ministering in the power of Jesus Christ. Those people who have great belief, they tend to exercise great faith. Those people who feel that they're faking it to make it, they're going to struggle. And that zeitgeist is not acceptable in my opinion. We hear it all the time from my young people. We might even use it in our talks on discipleship. Hey, just fake it to make it. Start behaving like you're a follower of Jesus and you know, all the feelings will follow. There's nothing about the kingdom of God that's fake. We're not about faking it to make it. If we're going to be authentic, let's be real about the struggle. But actually, let's also recognize that there's real significant power in the kingdom. And that power is in you. It's the hope of glory. So we're talking about actually working our way through this experience of fraudulence to find something new, something real, something timeless, something powerful. And that is not that you live your ministry like a worm. We, the church theology was slightly distorted by the Augustinian theology of total depravity, the idea that there wasn't anything virtuous within you and that you're a sort of dead vessel to be filled with the power of, of God. God doesn't kind of dislike you and then go to Ikea to buy a flat pack version of you when the old wardrobe is worn out. He takes the old wardrobe and he restores it and he makes it new so it's better than it was before but it's still effectively the same. Now, you are desired by God. He loves you. He, he delights in your ministries. He delights most of all in you. He's not made any mistakes with anyone here. You've not just sort of slipped through the cracks. No one's going to turn around and say, it's you, you need to leave. You're all here because God has chosen you and God has called you. And so I want you to feel the confidence of God behind you. Within all of this is, is psychology called belongingness. I, I don't know if there's any ex-teachers or teachers in the room, but I, I was a teacher back in the day, and 
um, when I was studying at Cambridge, we did a lot of work on uh, the sort of the, the nature of attachment theory, which is a key part of kind of human psychology. And you might have done Piaget and others uh, to try and understand why we attach. Now, attachment theory is really on vogue, and so if you're a youth worker, you probably know exactly what I'm talking about. When a young person is very disturbed, we'll all start saying, well, he's got a very poor attachment model because his dad left when he was three, his mum's been in and out of multiple relationships ever since, he's got no healthy boundaries at home, he's never really properly attached, and he's never really properly detached, therefore we see this mishmash between childlike behaviour and kind of chaotic outworking of frustration. So that's a classic kind of attachment theory analysis. And we place a lot of emphasis on attachment theory in our society. But I think there's something weird about attachment theory, because I'm always asking the question, well, why attach? Like, if detachment or individuation, as we call it in the psychological world, is so important, why, why connect in the first instance? You know, what's driving that, apart from basic biological functions, like I need something to eat? And, and that Baumeister and Leary proposed in 1995 in their study, The Need to Belong, this key principle which I think makes sense of the whole, which is actually a primary human driver, is the need to belong, to make significant and valuable personal relationships. Effectively, Baumeister and Leary are saying that we are created for connection, and that's something that I understand theologically. We need to belong because God has created us as people for relationship, for belonging. When God created Adam and Eve, he didn't kind of set them up outside the garden and there was a kind of 20 questions game before they got the keys to go in. God made the garden and he placed Adam and Eve in it and then he, he didn't even say, you belong here. He just said, take control of it. He, he assumed their understanding this was for them. He eat multiply, inhabit the land. This is the place of your belonging. And then God and Adam, you know, walking in the garden together, a place of belonging, just like a home, just going out for a walk with dad. Let's hang out together, of course, because you belong, because this is my garden, this is your garden, this is our garden. Now, we've all been created for belonging, but we all think we've been created for achieving, you know, the prior exit entry point to belonging in our society is not that you belong, like you belong. It's actually, what do I need to do in order to belong? Because we've associated our belonging with our achieving. If I just could achieve a little bit more, then surely I'd get the keys to belonging. And so we have this horrific bind in our society, which is actually that success breeds security. People say to me, well, if I just earned another 20K, I think I'd be really secure. Well, if I just got the right relationship, you know, I know I would secu- I'd be secure and I could settle down. Well, if I just got a promotion at work, I know they really valued me and then I'd feel really secure. If I could just get a little bit more success, then I'd feel really secure. You know, I can work with people who are 20 and people who are 80. And they say exactly the same thing. If I just had a little bit more success, if I just achieved a little bit more, then I would find the security that I crave. What they're really saying is, Will, I feel like I just don't really belong in this world. And I don't know how to belong. I don't know what I need to do to belong. I've got a feeling I've got to do something. I'm just not quite sure what that thing is. I know people who are multimillionaires 
who feel they do not belong and are desperately unhappy. And I work in homeless shelters with people who are equally unhappy and believe that they do not belong. I've just been on succumbent to the Grenfell site in London for the last six months, working in a team there around the mental health of that community. And I can tell you, large swathes of that community believe that they do not belong in the society. But what they think is that someone else, somewhere else, actually feels that they do belong because of their material wealth. And I keep coming back to this place of saying, you know what? Our belonging cannot be defined by our achieving. It cannot be determined by our succeeding. It has to be determined by something else, which is that God says that we do belong. We belong primarily to him. And people who understand that they primarily belong to God, they're what I call radical belongers. And they do things which transform society. Jean Vanier, who started the Larch community, he's a radical belonger. He said, I'm going to live with people with severe disability that society has excluded because I want them to know that they really belong. Archbishop Desmond Tutu, he's a radical belonger. He's transformed the experience of people in South Africa because he said, it's not okay that white people can experience this sort of belonging and black people can experience this sort of unbelonging. I want everyone, black and white, to know that they belong to Christ. If we as Christian leaders do not know ourselves that we belong aside from what we can achieve, then we're not really sharing the message that everyone needs to hear. But if we are secure in our belonging, if we can own belongingness, if we can say, I radically belong, that's when I have significant power to minister. That's when young people's lives are really going to be transformed. People always say to me, Will, what's the best book you've ever read? Or what book? If you had one book you could recommend to me, which book would it be? I'm going to do him a great favor, and he doesn't even know me yet. Um, But I would tell you to read Brennan Manning's book, Abba's Child. Probably the most unsung Christian epic ever written. Far better than Ragamuffin Gospel, which everyone says is the best book that they've ever read. But Brennan says in, in Abba's Child, define yourself as one dearly beloved of God, for all other identities are a falsehood. Define yourself as one beloved of God. Brennan's saying, define yourself as one who truly belongs. Because any other identity which you claim for yourself is a falsity. It's not real. Only this that you belong. That's the primary identity that you carry. And it's the primary key to our society. You, you guys, are gotta, you've got to wake up. Because you ain't never going to be rich. That's a fact of youth ministry right there. You ain't never going to be rich. You've got to wake up because you ain't never going to be really popular. Because if you're doing this right, you're going to be telling young people things they don't want to hear, as well as things that they do want to hear. So you're not going to be super popular. You're not going to be super rich. You're not going to have a whole lot of time because you're going to be super busy. So if you've got imaginations of you lying on the beach with your feet up in a hammock, then That might happen once in a while, but that's quite a long shot from your reality. So you've got to wake up to this. Because all those things, they ain't going to be things that you can look out for. But this thing is the only thing that you really need. This is better than all those other things. If you can operate out of this place of richness, then you've got 
the thing that the world really wants, the thing that the world really needs, which they think might be money or time or power or influence, but actually it's just to belong. If you think about Moses' story in Exodus chapter 3, if Moses saw a psychologist in like the 1400 BC, it would have been an interesting conversation. Oh, yes, Moses, just, t- just tell me again. So your mum, yes, oh, she put you in a basket and she pushed you out onto a river filled with crocodiles. Yes, I can understand that. It's very painful and confusing. All I can say is that her intentions were probably good, but the mythology wasn't particularly strong. Yes, Moses, I understand it was a very uncertain time in your development. And yes, yes, you were, you were in fact pulled out of the reeds by an Egyptian princess. And no, yes, you're right. The Egyptian princess was the daughter of the pharaoh who was killing all of your peers. That's right, yes, the massacre of the innocents. Yes, which you were escaping from, technically, so her intentions were largely good. And it must have been confusing bonding with her despite her being the arch enemy of your race. And that must have been quite confusing when your mum appeared out of the bushes and said actually she was no longer your mum anymore. I can understand that being a very difficult attachment experience. The fact that she said she wasn't your mum, it must have been hard to understand the fact that she was actually trying to still be your mum. Yes, she was actually denying that she was your mum. But then, hey, she did say she would be the uh, Egyptian princess's handmaiden and help you to you know, grow into a strong young Egyptian, which was confusing since you were actually Hebrew, but <laughs> never mind. Um, yes, this is not going particularly well, is it, Moses? And then you grew up believing that you were an Egyptian prince, whilst all the Hebrews were, yes, they were being killed, and they were slaves, and they were being treated despicably for all that time. But anyway, at least you did realize you were a Hebrew after all at the end of the day and got to do something about it, etc., etc., etc. The thing is that Moses, he had all of the issues of someone who didn't know where they belong. He had all the issues of a young person that you might be dealing in in your ministry today. Confusing family background. Questions about fatherhood, paternity, motherhood, care, trauma, tragedy. All of those kind of experiences. The fact is that Moses' shame basement was filled to bursting. And the reason sometimes we see young people explode with violence and rage is very often not because they are actually disordered, if you like, in their ability to control their rage, but actually they're just so bound by shame. Shame is often manifest in anger, this fury that rages behind the lid of the basement and then suddenly explodes. And so Moses does what's normal for someone who's shame-bound, and that's to place themselves into exile. You know, it's funny, actually a slave driver is just a slave in Egypt, a slave driver was a slave, there were slaves and slaves, and obviously slaves had orders of slaves, but slave drivers were slaves themselves. And for an Egyptian prince to kill an Egyptian slave was like sport. If you went back to Pharaoh as the son of Pharaoh and said, Dad, I killed a slave driver today because he really wound me up. Pharaoh would have said, oh, my son, well, maybe you could control your temper a little bit more, but let's not worry about it. They're only slaves after all. Because that's what Pharaoh said about slaves. But something sent Moses into exile. It wasn't the fear of Moses. It wasn't the fear of Pharaoh. It was the fear of himself. 
Moses is terrified. He can't believe what's happened to him. He can't believe the depths that he's plumbed. And so Moses turns and he runs into the desert of Midian. I mean, it's miraculous that Moses even survived the deserts of Midian. But when he gets there, he spends 40 years in exile. He places himself in separation. The thing about shame, it does exactly that. It places you in exile. Apart from the fact is that you don't run to the deserts of Midian, you just have an exile where you stay present, apparently, but you're actually absent. You, you just never really show up. You're kind of in the room, but you're not really in the room. You're, you know, you're not there behind the eyes. You present what you think people want to see, but you don't actually allow them to see who you really are. And you can live your whole life in exile. Uh, I did some work with a woman, a doctor, a very senior doctor, who had a terrible nervous breakdown in her 60s. I was trying to help unpick what might have led to this breakdown. And uh, she's the sort of woman who you, you went to her house, and if you went to a toilet, there was certification from, like, the best establishments in the country around medicine, awards of every kind, you know, a wall full of incredible glory. She said to me one day, you know what? She said, I realize now I've only ever done anything in the hope that my mum would just say, I love you, you're enough for me. And when she died recently at the age of 98, I think I finally realized that she was never, ever going to actually say that. That was the point at which I realized I'd not really been living. Not really been living. I've just been... I've just been wheedling out of this world of shame, trying to get someone to approve of me, trying to get someone to acknowledge that my success is enough for my security. When in fact, God's saying is, you are secure. The foundations of success are often found in security. But the foundations for security are never found in success. Moses, after 40 years in self-imposed exile in Midian, suddenly comes across this burning bush and acknowledges the fact that God is present there. And he, he comes before the burning bush and God speaks to him powerfully in Exodus chapter 3. And God says to Moses that he's heard the cries of distress from his people and he asks Moses to go. So go, he says in verse 10. I am now sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Shame hates humiliation more than anything. Shame is like embarrassment supercharged. In fact, Darwin said that shame is the only thing that distinguishes humans from animals. And he noted this in his study on blushing amongst babies. So what he said was that there's not a single animal in the jungle that comes out of its mother's womb and looks embarrassed. But a baby, prior to 15 months, will look away in shame and embarrassment from an unfamiliar face. He said that this strange phenomenon, this sort of endemic shyness or shame, is distinctive and particular to humanity. Strikes me as a very good case for the fall that original sin, this propensity towards shame, is the seed within us all. I've got three small children. I've seen them all do exactly that. I did not teach them how to be shy or embarrassed. I'm not a shy or embarrassable person. But they all came out looking like this. Moses is desperate not to be humiliated. Going back to your place of humiliation is the last thing you want to do. I, I was a student and not a very great Christian of any repute when I was at Cambridge University. I never go back to Cambridge University. 
because it feels so embarrassing and humiliating to sort of remember what a waster I was for a few years. I avoid places which feel humiliating. We all avoid spaces of humiliation. The last thing that Moses wants to do is to go back to this place of humiliation. Moses says to God in verse 11, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? God says he will be with them. Moses says, How will they believe me? What if they don't believe me? It seems to me the most ridiculous question. If you'd really run away from Egypt because you're terrified about getting killed by Pharaoh, would you not be worried about going back to Egypt in case you're killed by Pharaoh? Would it not seem the most natural thing to say, God, I'm not going back there because he's going to kill me? Moses says, God, I'm not going to go back there because he might not believe me. What he's really saying is, God, I don't want to go back there because I'm going to be totally humiliated. I'm going to be totally embarrassed. Like, what power have I got? What purpose have I got? What qualification have I got? You know, in ministry, I meet tons of leaders who've got exactly the same problem. Again, I don't know what I can say to these people. I don't know what qualification I've got to minister to these people. I don't know what authority I've got to lead these people. What if they don't listen to me? What if they don't believe me? What if they don't respond to me? What if there's no power when I minister? Yeah, all of that. God's just saying, yeah, it's you. I'm calling you. I'm equipping you. I know you. You belong to me. You've got to go. I'm going to give everything that you need to go with. And for Moses, that was this strange experience. Then the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. Every shepherd of any repute in the desert would have had a staff with him to defend the sheep. And the Lord said, throw it on the ground. So Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake and he'd run from it. I'm, I know Bear Grylls a little bit. I don't know if you know Bear Grylls. He's a kind of adventurer guy. He's a very nice guy. He knows a lot about snakes. He says, there's only two things you should do with a snake. The first one is run away. He said, but if you have to pick up a snake, pick up the snake by the back of the head, squeeze your thumb into the back, there's a little ridgy bit just behind its head, and you can control its bite. little word of advice in case anyone's thinking about it, but never pick up an animal by its tail. It's generally a bad call, but never ever pick up a snake by its tail. Why would you not pick up a snake by its tail? Because it's going to bite you, right? Because you're giving it the maximum opportunity for that snake just to reach around and bite you. God is saying to Moses who was a shepherd for 40 years in the, in the desert in Midian, there are not a lot of lions. There are not any bears. Really, I mean, maybe like a rare bear, but like it's not like every day you're going to see a bear. Every day you're going to see a snake. He's a snake master. He knows he, he's like the Jedi shepherdy snake person. And God is saying to him to do the opposite thing that he would be called to do every single day. The most counterintuitive thing. Pick up the snake by the tail. See, Moses, listening to Bear Grylls, the first thing he does is run away from it. But that's just not what God's called him to do. Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. Like, God, what are you on? What's this? This is, this is not what we do. And so Moses reached out and took a hold of the snake and it turned back into a staff in his hand. You know, God realizes that unless Moses addresses his shame and takes the risk of being bitten by it, it will never be a bridge for him. It will never have power for him. It will never carry an authority for him. 
If he keeps his shame basement locked down, he's going to stay in exile for the rest of his life. But if he recognizes actually that he can pick this thing up, which might bite him, but equally could be a power to him, then he's got the authority to go back into Egypt. You see, Moses realizes that he can own his story by picking up this snake. He picks up this snake and it becomes his staff. Now, it's interesting that this snake, this shame story that becomes this staff, is the same staff that Moses uses to part the sea, to get water out of the rock, to hold up high, to guide the people to safety. This story, this shame story, becomes a bridge when it had been a barrier. Moses doesn't argue with God anymore about what he's called to do. He goes straight over to Egypt. And you know the first thing that Pharaoh does? He threatens Moses with humiliation by his magicians throwing down two snakes on the ground, demonstrating the power that they had to sort of remind Moses of a shame story. But Moses calls Aaron, who is training, to throw down his staff, and Aaron's staff becomes a snake, and it gobbles up their snakes too. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe these real snakes and real staffs, these aren't like metaphors this is real action of God. But it strikes me as significant and interesting as we understand this study around shame. That it's only when we can face humiliation with courage that we can really overcome our shame story. Moses had to acknowledge that being safe from his story was always going to keep him away from his ministry. But owning his story, actually opening up his shame basement, was going to give him the authority to really effectively minister to the people. Brené Brown, who's done a lot of work on shame, says that shame, blame, disrespect, and the withholding of affection damage the roots from which love can grow. You know, for Moses, his roots were damaged by shame. But God showed him how he could regrow, how he could regroup, how he could actually, you know, extend in ministry again, how he could flourish. And however excluded you may feel right now, however unworthy you may feel right now, God can do this work in your life. God can transform your life from a self-imposed exile to a ministry of power and authority. God can do that for you right now. God can do that work. As you pick up the proverbial snake by the tail, it becomes a staff to you and therefore you begin to exercise power. You see, shame drives mistrust into the promises of God. And this is all about reclaiming the promises before us. The snake in the garden is so interesting. You know, in Greco-Roman culture, snakes were revered as healers. In every other world religion other than Christianity and Judaism, snakes are loved as carrying healing properties. It's a great deception. The snake that you see on the, on the medical pole in a doctor's surgery it's not the snake of Moses, it's a Roman snake. It's a Greek snake. The snake, the serpent, the deceiver is here in the garden on a tree. And it's driving mistrust into the promises of God. The first thing it says is, did God really say that? Did God really say that you're a son or a daughter? Did God really say that you're forgiven and clean? Did God really say that you have authority to lead young people? Did God really say that you're called and equipped? Shame drives mistrust into the promises of God. Unless you've dealt with that shame snake, those lies always feel so real. 
It's interesting to me that when I tell Christians, particularly older leaders, about the shame story, they always say, well, well, you know, what's the opposite of shame? I mean, what am I supposed to do? What's like, what am I supposed to be getting to? Should I be shameless? And I'm saying no, because shamelessness is not what we're called to. In fact, in Scripture, people who are shameless are those who've been given over to their evil desires because they've lost sight of the state of being, which is prior right to shame, which is not shamelessness, it's actually humility. You see, in the Garden of Eden, before that encounter with the shame snake, Adam and Eve were not shameless. There were three things about them which are significant. The first one is that they were unique and alone in the garden. All of the other animals, plants, birds, fish, they were a multiplicity of those things, but there was just these two solitary figures in the garden. They were alone and unique, yet they were not ashamed. How many of your young people tried to be like other people? How many of them put Facebook profiles on that look strangely like Justin Bieber? How many of us do that, trying to look like someone? How many of us compliment one another, saying, oh, wow, you look just like so-and-so? You know, in the Scriptures, the hedonic state of being was about not looking like anyone else. Likeness was not desirable. Uniqueness was desirable because it accepted the image that God created you in. It's only when they'd encountered the shame snake that they began to desire likeness with God. The second boundary humility state that they were in was the fact that actually they lived in a world that carried healthy boundaries. They were not allowed to motor around anywhere in the Garden of Eden and eat from any tree. They were actually told, you are not allowed to eat of this tree. They had to exist within boundaries, and yet they were not ashamed. Boundaries are healthy. Limitations are good. Actually, when we're not shame-bound, limitations aren't a problem with our ego. Limitations are just wise advice. Want to know why young people keep breaking the boundaries? It's because they're so shame-bound. They feel so ashamed. They, they cannot allow themselves to be hemmed in in every way because they have to choose a freedom which is a counterfeit freedom. To say, no, no, I'm not bound, I'm free. I just watched a film yesterday called The Heart of Man, which is an incredible Christian film which features William Young, who um, wrote The Shack. You might know him as um, William Paul Young. And it's a story of men who've got addiction to affairs, pornography, all sorts of strange sexual outworking, and uh, women too. And in it, hearing the testimonies of these men, they're, they're saying that they, they felt desperately ashamed, and yet they feel, through their shame, compelled to break boundaries, compelled, one affair after another, one round of pornography after another, one round of rule-breaking after another. Why? Because they were natural rule-breakers? No, because they were bound by shame. Adam and Eve were not bound by shame. They experienced limitations, and they accepted the limitations that they experienced. And, and thirdly and finally, Adam and Eve were not shameless. They were humble. They were naked, it says, and yet they were not ashamed. Now, this is not about physical nakedness in our day and age, but it's about characterful nakedness. It's saying, actually, they were naked and were not ashamed. You can be characterfully naked and not be ashamed by saying, yep, this is who I am. Let me introduce you to Will Vanderhart. I'm characterfully naked and I'm not ashamed. If you don't like me, that's totally fine. I'm just saying this is who I am. Maybe I'm Marmite. doesn't matter to me. What's important here is that I know I belong to God. Interestingly, the first thing that Adam and Eve do when they eat that apple 
It says they realized that they were naked, they felt ashamed, and they placed themselves into exile. Their exile was just to sew fig leaves together or animal skins and cover themselves. It's just what we do. We just don't use skins or leaves. We just use a false self. We cover ourselves with some sort of persona we think other people are really going to like. The virtue behind this is the idea that we will accept our limitations, we will welcome our uniqueness, and we'll lead out of our vulnerability, relying on God's unconditional grace. This is your decision. This is what we're saying. I'm going to accept my limitations. I'm going to welcome my uniqueness. I'm going to lead out of my vulnerability, and I'm going to be reliant on God's unconditional grace. It's just saying I belong. It just, just says I belong. I belong here. I belong to do what I'm doing. Called to this. I'm not called to this. This is the... Uh, this is the false self. We've all seen it. You've got that persona. I'm the funny guy. Uh, I'm the cool guy. I'm the sports guy. You know, I'm, the, I'm the really trend girl. I'm the like, Bible teaching girl. I'm your preaching guy. I'm your prophetic girl. Carry these labels. We're trying to live by them. We promote this false self to live behind. We push that one forward. You know what it does? It means we can never receive a blessing because actually someone's blessing something that isn't us. We can also never receive a criticism because we're pushing someone forward and actually that's not really us. We can receive neither blessing nor discipleship as long as we keep pushing a false self forward. We just tell ourselves in the background, ah, they're not really blessing us, they don't really know us. If they knew what we really liked, then they wouldn't say anything like that. Or, oh, they're not really criticizing me, they didn't really know me because I've never really shown them me, they're just criticizing this thing that I created that isn't actually me. Like, we're neither blessed nor are we discipled. We, we just keep propagating an image out there that isn't actually who we actually are. Now, don't get me wrong, this isn't a professional persona. If you go to the doctor and you sit down and he's like, oh, Will, I had a massive curry last night, yeah? Oh, I had a few beers as well. Now, you're feeling a bit rough. You tell me your symptoms and I'll put them in wiki and we'll find out what's wrong with you. Like, if I went to the doctor like that, I would never go back to that doctor ever again. Like, that is not a doctor. Like, that is, that is someone who's just, you know, lacking a professional persona. If you go to the doctor, you expect them to be wearing a, you know, a nice suit or a, at least a white coat and have a stethoscope and they treat you like the patient and they treat you professionally and it's all good. It doesn't mean that they're being duplicitous, it just means they're being professional. Youth workers, you're meant to be professional. That means there's a persona that you have that you should use in your ministry. Like, that's not duplicitous. You are not supposed to be every young person's friend. You're their leader. Stop acting like their friend. You're their leader. Lead them like a leader does. If, if a young person says, uh, you know, ask you a question, oh, tell me all about your history. You don't go, well, let's go, sit down, let's go through it all together. You think about what's appropriate to tell them, what's edifying to tell them, what's supportive to tell them in that moment, and what's appropriate for you as a leader to tell them. That's a professional persona. But you are known in fullness to a group of people who love you and to whom you belong strongly. That means that you are accountable to an accountable partner. You are discipled in a discipleship group. You are under authority and you're honest with your leadership. You have friends who you're real with. You have maybe in a marriage an honesty and accountability about your relationship. You find all the places where it's appropriate to be wholly you, and in those spaces you are absolutely 100% who you actually are. The mistake we make is that 
we drag this professional persona that we believe we're validated to create into all of our interpersonal and private relationships. So no one actually knows us. We don't even know us. We just feel like we're living our lives like a fraud, not really ever showing up. Within you is a very dysfunctional piece of psychology. It's called the sociometer. On one level, it's brilliant, but on another level, it's been so distorted by the fall that it presents an awful lot of problems to us as we're trying to make progress. And I would say belongingness is the theory that you have an energy to belong, but the sociometer is the means by which you determine whether you belong or not. Many of us here will have a hyperactive sociometer. What that means is we are constantly looking around for signs that we're actually not included. And some of those signs we will be perceiving in other people's faces. I, um, <clears throat> when I was leading my church in Harrow, I remember very clearly a very senior person in my church suddenly disappeared. And they would normally, they would pop into the church office a couple of times in the week. They were at various meetings. For nearly three weeks, they completely vanished. And I thought mistakenly that they'd gone on holiday. But after three weeks of absence, I thought something must be wrong. I knew they weren't ill, but I thought something must be wrong. So I called them up and said, can you come to the church office? I'd love to see you. And reluctantly, they came in. And I told this woman, I, I sat, sat her down, gave her a cup of tea, and I said, look, you know, you're unusual for you to be away for this, for this long. You know, what's gone on? She said to me, oh, I feel very hurt. And I said, well, wow, tell me, you know, what's, what's hurt you? She said, someone in the church really rejected me and made me feel like I don't belong. I said, um, I said I'm so sorry. What on earth did they say to you? She said, oh, they didn't actually say anything. I said, oh, well, what did they do to you? She said, well, I, I reached out my hand to them in the peace to shake hands with them. They just blanked me and shook the hand of the person next to me. I said, wow, who is that person? She said, it was you. <laughs> me? I said, I didn't even see you. She said, precisely. <laughs> I genuinely hadn't seen this woman. Her sociometer was so distorted that she believed that I'd actively rejected her and avoided her hand for the sake of someone next to her. We will all have a sociomic estimation of how included or excluded we are. Some of us will estimate ourselves against other people's intellect. Some of us will estimate ourselves against other people's styles, their ethnicities, their backgrounds. Socially, we'll be saying, I don't belong here for this reason. I exclude myself for this reason. I exclude myself for this struggle, through this challenge. This is the reason I exclude myself. And that's proven because I've seen so-and-so-and-so-and-so say this, act this way, or relate that way. I just need to bring you right back to what God is saying. Humans are fallible and broken and filled with bias and prejudice. That does not mean that your place here, your place in this calling is dependent on what they think. Your place here, your role, your responsibility, your calling, that's all dependent on what he thinks. When Moses went back into Egypt, it wasn't like they opened their arms to him and said, hey, you're back, Moses, high five. I know the Lord's called you. Wow, your staff turns into a snake. That's pretty cool. But we're not going to let the Israelites go. In fact, we're going to roll through the plagues until we're going to do that sort of business. It wasn't like he was captain popular in the desert either. Rescues the people. They're like, I want to go back to Egypt. I had a better deal there, better grapes, better vines. You're called to this, not because other people say you are, because God says that you are. When you radically belong to him, all of the slights that you experience around you become less powerful, 
They don't activate your shame basement. They don't make you want to run into exile. If you're a Star Wars fan, you know this is young Anakin Skywalker. He casts a pretty fierce shadow. And the thing about false selves is that we will always fulfill a shadow mission if our false self is unaddressed. Right? T- I could preach Romans 8. I could preach this fierce sermon that Jesus Christ is crucified, but through his grace you're set free, right? I could preach, I reckon, a rocking sermon on Romans chapter 8 over here. I'm going to preach this amazing sermon to you guys over here. You're going to laugh, you're going to be crying in the aisles, some of you are going to be becoming a Christian again, and it's all going to be going on over here, right? So this is, this is my spiritual experiment with you guys. This is what I'm doing over here. I'm doing that because I'm fulfilling my true mission, which is to preach Christ crucified. That's my mission. I'm doing it over here. And I'm doing it in fullness. I've really shown up today. I'm doing that right over here. Over here, I tell you, I could preach exactly the same sermon as the sermon I preached over here. You guys are going to be laughing and going to be crying. Some of you become Christians for the second time. You're so moved by what I'm saying. I tell you what I'm doing over here. I'm fulfilling my shadow mission. That's that Will van der Hart is funny. Exactly the same sermon. Exactly the same material. Exactly the same response. It's just distorted five degrees to the right. Just five degrees between my true mission and my shadow mission. You know, we all do this if we haven't dealt with our false selves. We just twist the mission of God just that little way, just so we can actually get the things that we need to prop up our fragile egos. You know, Moses, Moses is he's called to be a shepherd of the sheep of Israel and to take them through the desert to the promised land. What does he become? A shepherd of sheep. Just five degrees. He's a shepherd, right? Shepherd of sheep, shepherd of people. Shepherd of people, shepherd of sheep. It's just five degrees. Unless he's recalibrated through a shame, he's never going to fulfill the mission that God's called him to. What is your shadow mission? What is your default to do? If you're not doing the thing that God's called you to, what do you do? Because your shadow mission is the thing that you do when you're not doing the thing that God has called you to do. Some people are just chilling and watching Netflix. Like, you just do that all day. If you weren't called to do anything else, you're just like totally binging on daytime TV whilst the world goes to hell in a handbasket. You're like, I'm out. That's my shadow mission. Like, other people's shadow mission is to get power, to gain people's confidence, be funny, to be needed. We've all got a shadow mission. Unless we identify it, we're always going to be hamstrung by it. So I want you to identify what your shadow mission is and so doing, you'll find the mission that God's called you to. By the way, there are very few people who get a grandiose mission like Moses to take the people across the desert. I do a lot of coaching around marriage. People say to me, Will, what do you think the answer is to a uh, long and happy marriage? I said, you wake up every morning, you roll over, you decide you're going to love the socks off of the person next to you, then you go to bed, you do the whole thing the next day. Just keep doing that every single day, guarantee. You spend the rest of your life, as long as you're both healthy, you'll spend the rest of your lives together, very happy in love. That's it. So easy to have a happy marriage. Roll over, love the socks off the person next to you, don't expect anything in return, guaranteed, every single day. If you both decide to do that, it's going to be incredible. How do you do discipleship over the long haul? You just wake every day, so you're going to love the socks off God, do it all day, go to bed, wake up the next day, do exactly the same thing again. Just keep doing that every single day. Wake up, love the socks off God, carry on next day, do it forever. You're going to carry on for eternity doing the same thing. It's absolutely fantastic. Just Christian discipleship. That's all you have to do. 
You don't need to worry about crossing the Jordan, going through the desert, getting kind of clean water out of rocks. You don't need to worry about any of that stuff. You just need to wake up and love the socks off of God. That's what your primary mission is. Anything else is a shadow mission. Just say, God, let me do this. I want to do this because I know that I belong. When you join together your true mission and your true self, that's when you're truly powerful. There's no secret to real spiritual power. It's just this. You show up and God shows up. When you really show up in power to fulfill the true mission, it's not because of power that you carry, it's the power God carries. God loves to work through you. He loves to work through his people. He loves to transform the world. He just works with people who actually show up. So just show up for work. Go, God, I'm showing up today. Going to love your socks off today. I belong. Fill me with power. It's that simple. Brené says that shame cannot survive being spoken about. It cannot survive empathy. If you want to really disempower the shame basement in your life, I just really encourage you to get together with a couple of really trusted friends and just say, let's just share the stuff that we wouldn't share with anyone else. Keep it entirely confidential. Just say, look, I just want to get some stuff off my chest. This is the stuff I struggle with. This is my shadow mission. If you see me bending stuff off course, I want you to just challenge me and say, hey, 101, shadow mission. Let's get this stuff straight. Let's just be real with someone. Secrets kill us for the whole of our lives. Secrets, they just kill us for the whole of our lives. The longevity of a secret is for as long as you want to carry it is a bitter burden. Just get free. Just know that you belong. There's nothing you can say that can exclude you from the love of God. Nothing that you could do that could exclude you from the love of God. It's already yours. You've already got it. You know what's interesting about this story is that in Numbers 21.9, snakes start biting the people. And it's like they've turned their eyes down to the ground again. They started moaning and complaining. And uh, the instruction is that Moses lift up a bronze snake on a pole and the people will look to it. They'll raise their eyes to heaven and then they will see uh, God again and they will be healed. And, um, you know, it, it's an amazing thing. It's like shame has come round again. You've got to keep in this battle. You've got to keep fighting the same fight over the long haul. Otherwise, you get stuck. You know, it comes back up time and again. It's amazing how the snake keeps appearing in the tree saying, did God really say that? You know, what I find remarkable is that then you get into John's gospel. And um, you, you, you come across this incredible passage. It says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. You know, the snake story began in the Garden of Eden. Shame invested itself in the lives of the first humans. It has become the Darwinian distinction between us and other animals that we carry this weird original sin, this sense of shame. It's the thing that Moses wrestled with in the desert. It's the thing that bit the Israelites and, and left them beginning to die. And then here, Jesus becomes the snake in order that we might be set free. He becomes our shame so that we could share in his glory. It's a remarkable story. The story of shame in Scripture begins in the garden, but it ends on the cross. And this is what is true right now, is that the snake is already dead. I mean, it's still writhing around in its sort of throes of dying. 
but it's being conquered once and for all on the cross because Jesus became shame. He became our shame so that we could share in his glory. And so God doesn't see you anymore as one who deserves exile, as one who deserves punishment. He sees you as one who's dearly beloved. He sees you as you really are, as a radical belonger of God. That's what he sees. All he's asking you to do this morning is to just become what he already sees. Become the person that you already are. Know that you're secure, guaranteed from there you'll see incredible spiritual success. Can we thank Will, first of all, for, for that? There was so much in that, and it's going to take a lot of processing, I know. Thanks for listening to the Limitless Leadership Podcast. We want to make sure that the Limitless Leadership Podcast is tackling the issues that affect you in youth ministry. So email us at info at limitlesselam.co.uk to let us know the issues you'd like us to discuss. Stay in touch with us on social media. We're at Limitless Elam on Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, Facebook, and YouTube. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast through iTunes or however you get your podcast. See you next time.